Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're on Voice America Business Channel. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And today we are broadcasting again from the wonderful city of Los Angeles. Well, I went to see Lisa Fisher at the Catalina Jazz Club in Hollywood last night. She was absolutely sensational. And, you know, you might know Lisa Fisher. She is just the best singer, unbelievable. And uh, she was backup singer for the Stones. And so... um, when my friend, who's a, a writer, and I arrived, um, there was, we were right near the front, and there were six empty tables right in front of us, and we thought, that's really weird to have empty tables in a show like this. The rest of the place was absolutely jammed, and sure enough, in come the stones, and sit in front of us, and right next to them, about two tables away was Liza Minnelli, who was looking great, i got to say. So if you have a chance to catch Lisa Fisher, with or without the stones sitting at the table next to you, make sure you do it. It is an evening you will certainly remember. She is one hell of a singer. So it was a great night. Now, this program's all about helping entrepreneurs, and everyone in business for that matter, to be more successful. We've been bringing you information, great advice, and fantastic interviews now for over four years to help you maximize your own success. Now, it's fantastic to see entrepreneurs putting money back into the community, and there's no cause more worthwhile in the United States right now than education. Now, our education leaves a lot to be desired. Now, former Googler... Max Ventilla just raised $100 million from Zuckerberg and others to reform education. Startup Alt School, structured to disrupt education, was founded in 2013. And what it does, it essentially creates a network of schools for kids between kindergarten and eighth grade. And each school, which they call micro schools, include about 100 kids that learn in multi-age groups. They also learn in larger multi-purpose classrooms compared to a typical school. And an interesting idea is that there's no principals on site either. All administrative duties are centralised. The company also has its own proprietary technology platform designed to make it easier for children to learn. Alt School uses playlists that consist of a weekly mix of activities to enhance learning. These so-called playlists include 20 to 25 activities per week that range between individual projects, small group projects, and whole class projects. The concept's based on the fact that from SpaceX to Airbnb to Oscar to today's strongest entrepreneurs are creating technology-enabled models to transform some of the oldest and most established industries in the world. Now, there's no question that the time has come to reimagine education. Anybody who sat through a presentation by the brilliant 
Sir Ken Robinson, would realise that education in America needs a dramatic organisation, not just major tinkering at the edges. It's got to be started from scratch. You know, the US education systems remained unaltered for donkey's years, decades. Now, old school has the audacious vision and scalability solution to accelerate truly transformative changes in the education space. Now, the 100 million round will include a new debt facility to fund school expansion, which comes after the startup raised 33 million Series A financing last year. The company has plans to open up new schools in Palo Alto, San Francisco and Brooklyn this fall. And fortunately, Alt School is just one of many startups trying to disrupt school systems and public education. To you, an online curriculum and degree program used by universities went public in 2014. And Flatiron School, which teaches students to code, and that's one thing that's desperately needed in the United States, has raised $15 million. So maybe, at last, we're going to get some traction on totally revamping our education system. Let's hope so. God, not before time. Now, with the huge increase in interest in drones over the last few months, the FAA is releasing a new app for drone enthusiasts. The new smartphone app will tell drone enthusiasts whether they're cleared for takeoff, sparing them the trouble of interpreting a thicket of regulations on no-fly zones. The app called B4U Fly will give hobbyists a simple yay or nay based on their location. So it only takes a few taps to find out if you're ready to fly. And with all the hundreds of thousands of drones that are preparing to take to the air in the next couple of years, doing everything from delivering parcels to allowing media networks to get in close and personal with their video feeds, a a network in LA um, this week is um, having a segment every morning on their morning program with drones going into all sorts of parts of Los Angeles that you would never ever otherwise see. So the FAA needs to make sure that hobbyists and modelers know where it's okay to fly and where it isn't okay to fly. Now the drone enthusiast who crashed a quadcopter within the Capitol compound just a couple of months ago is a pretty good example of where not to fly. So Before You Fly will be released to a thousand beta testers on Apple devices this summer with an Android version slated for later development. A rapid escalation in in drone um, sophistication, moving from exotic military technology to mass market. But the um, growth and rapid growth is, is raising security and privacy concerns. An anti nuclear protester just landed a drone bearing a spooky-looking radio radiation hazard symbol on the roof of the Japanese Prime Minister's office. Did you see that in the news? Woo! There are now drones fitted with guns, so obviously they could be fitted with explosives or a collective payload of weaponised material. Drones can be used to take down a plane or deliver explosives or biological threats. 
to a whole bunch of specific areas all at once. So that is pretty scary. And the first major act of drone-based vandalism just happened last week to a billboard in New York. So the potential threats from consumer drones has encouraged a handful of pretty smart dudes to create businesses such as Drone Shield. Now, Drone Shield offers consumer drone detection and mitigation technology, so it can spot your drone and then work out how to take it out. So even as the consumer drone industry is just beginning to take flight, its counterpart, counterpart, the anti-drone industry, is hot in its trail. A drone shields a network of um, acoustic sensors, and they're designed to identify incoming consumer drones as far away as a thousand yards, and then they alert its customers to their presence via text or email. Drone Shield was recently included as one of an array of heightened security measures at this year's Boston Marathon, where, of course, drones were banned. So Drone Shield's core technology just relies on off-the-shelf weatherproof microphones and Wi-Fi hotspots or cellular connections to transmit the acoustic data. The software that crunches this data isolates incoming drone noise from all other background noises and correctly identifies it based on a library of available consumer drone models. So drones are going to highlight a whole host of issues, not the least of which are privacy and security. They're both going to be major issues. So let's hope the government's trying to get a hold ahead of these issues and not be years behind as it normally is. You know, the government always seems to be about five years behind. And, you know, it's known drones are coming now for a couple of years, so you think that they would be much more advanced than they actually are. But it, it, they have the possibility of causing unbelievable mayhem so let's make let's hope that they get their hands around it now patent just granted to amazon it's revealed its plans for delivery drones the patent was granted at the end of april only a couple of weeks ago and relates to the use of an unmanned aerial vehicle configured to autonomously deliver items of inventory to various Destination. So that's what it says. An unmanned aerial vehicle configured to autonomously de- deliver items of inventory to various destinations. So obviously, a drone is going to be able to take a number of packages and drop them off at different locations. That's really interesting. And also, it will be able to follow customers. So it will deliver to where your cell phone is. So if you're not at home and you're standing on the corner of Main Street and Smith Street, the drone will actually drop it to you right there. Much of this testing is being carried out in the United Kingdom in Cambridge. Why? Why, you ask? Well, because of the restrictions on UAVs in the United States. But... um, The key details are that uh, these drones can talk to each other and relay 
important details like weather conditions or obstacles along the way. It'll relay that information and autonomously plan safer routes where possible. Very cool. It'll constantly monitor for humans or other animals that might be in the way of uh, or the planned path of the UAW, UAV and modify the navigation of the UAV to avoid them. So it'll, it'll spot an obstacle, send out the message to all the other drones to um, go around that obstacle. That's pretty cool. So although the drones will op- operate autonomously, pilots will be used to help land the devices for the first time, and then this landing data will be saved to fully automatic fully automate the next delivery. So you'll have a pilot actually responsible for the first drop, puts all the details into the computer, and uh, from then on, the drone's on its own. Very cool. So it appears that Amazon are taking the use of drones for delivery very seriously. You know, I think it's fantastic. I can't wait to get my first package. I don't care what it is. So I'm looking forward to that first drone. Daimler Trucks in North America has unveiled the first self-driving commercial truck. It's licensed to drive on US public highways. The Freightliner Inspiration Truck. That's what it's called, the Freightliner Inspiration Truck. It allows drivers to cede full control of all critical functions when cruising down the highway. That's all you need, a 100-ton truck with no driver. Hmm, I don't know about that. The Autonomous Semi hopes to reduce accidents, road congestion and fuel consumption. I'm still not sure about a 20- or 50-ton semi racing down the highway at 80 miles an hour with no driver. But drivers are still required to control the vehicle when exiting the highway, driving on local roads or docking for deliveries. But these these um, sort of limited self-driving vehicles, they've got to be paving the way for 100% autonomous vehicles in the near future where drivers aren't needed at all, any time during the ride. Google's driverless cars have been licensed to hit the roads in several states for a few years now, and the company's testing a prototype for fully automated cars that don't even have steering wheels and pedals. It's a bit like they started building houses a few years ago without kitchens because they figured that most um, millennials don't cook. Well, that didn't last very long, so I'm not sure that this will either. Although it was announced yesterday morning that out of the 44 driverless cars in California, two of them have been involved in road accidents while being fully automated. Now, that's not as bad as it sounds because both of those accidents occurred when the car was doing less than 10 miles an hour. So when it's doing 65 on the freeway, safe. But when it's doing two or three up a driveway, not so safe. I don't quite understand that, but there must be some sense to it. So make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter. So if you're listening to the program regularly, make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which is being sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries in this next week. We received a great response to the April newsletter, so make sure you get the May edition. 
And you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show worldwide on Voice America Business. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air or we'll email you directly. We've also had a lot of requests over the last few months to send out a summary of each week's radio program, which we are now beginning to do. We've sent out about four or five now, and the feedback's been fantastic, so thank you for that. It's greatly appreciated. And today's interview, in just a moment, is with a friend of mine and a neighbour in Woodland Hills here in California. Per Chauffeurs has built a number of successful and very profitable sales and marketing companies in Europe and in the US. And one of the interesting things that not enough people pay attention to is product pricing. And Per is an absolute expert at this, so we're going to talk about a number of his processes. But what I'm most interested in is his processes with regard to establishing price. Too many entrepreneurs and, in fact, too many business people in general misprice their products and leave a lot of money on the table. That's one alternative, or they don't take enough money off the table and it contributes to their demise. Now, Per is frequently quoted in the financial press, including in Fortune magazine, Inc., Industry Week, and the Financial Times. He's a great guy, a member of Metal, Media, Entertainment, Technology, Alpha Leaders, which is premier organization here in Los Angeles. And I'll be back with Per after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary, successful people. People that are making a difference. There's incredibly talented people in this world and I love to chat to them because there's so much that they can teach us that will help us to avoid making the mistakes that they may have made early in their career. So my aim in these um, interviews is to try and find out what makes them tick, what makes them special and how each of us can learn from them. Perth Chauffeurs describes himself as a rainmaker. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. 
He makes things happen and he never gives up. He's a neighbour of mine just up the street and let me tell you, he also tells it exactly the way it is. Purr has built up a number of successful and very profitable sales and marketing companies in Europe and here in the US. He conceptualised and developed the consulting service Atenga, which is a leading global consulting firm specialising in customer intelligence research, predictive analysis, pricing and sales growth. Now, predictive analysis, there's another thing that interests me. Atenga has helped turn around over 100 businesses. He helps companies double their growth rates. And of course, in the process of doubling your growth rate, you can double or triple your revenues. And if you're pricing right, you can double your gross margins and it's great for shareholders as well. So we'll talk about a number of his processes which relate to honing your market messages and to re-engineering your sales force. But what I'm most interested in is his processes with regard to establishing price. Too many entrepreneurs and business people in general, I guess, misprice their products and leave a lot of money on the table or don't generate sufficient funds and it leads to their demise. Either way, not a good solution. Now, Per has been frequently quoted in the financial press, including Fortune, Inc., Industry Week, Financial Times, and a whole bunch of others. Hi, Per. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Hey, Bob. Um, thank you very much for having uh, me on the show. It's a pleasure. So, why is setting prices... Well, first of all, what what is setting the right price? Is that just the point at the extremity at which the customer will bear it? Is that what the right price means? The right price, um, I you know, I find this very interesting. I've I've had the opportunity, like you said in the introduction, to uh, to run a few companies here in the U.S. and and also in Europe, and 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 during that time, I did some experiments with pricing and. What was interesting was that some of them worked really very well and, and others completely blew up. Um, and what I could learn in business school about pricing was just way too academic. It was too abstract. Um, and the books I could read about pricing were the same. It wasn't really anything that I could do as a business leader uh, learning from, 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 uh, from these sources. So. So instead, I set up, <coughs> conceptualize um, Atenga to make pricing practical. Right. And and there's two cornerstones in in that, um, in 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 that quest, so to speak. And that is to understand that price is the most powerful message, marketing message, of the quality and the benefit you as a a company provide your customers. And the way that works is that. If you price too low, it simply becomes a, 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 a message of inferior quality in, in the minds of your customers or potential customers. And um, the lower the price, um, then the, the lower your sales level becomes. And, and it's, uh, if you then raise prices, not only will your sales level increase, but also your profitability, of course. Right. And, and, and on the other side of the, the coin, if you price yourself too high, then people won't buy for a variety of reasons. Most common reason is actually not access to funds, but it's simply that the sales force 
or your marketing messages have failed to deliver a, um, a an appropriate message or value to the customer. Yeah, and if your value proposition is not there, you're not going to get the price. Um, I had an experience. Right. It, it, it's a perception of the product too. I had a, a product I mentioned to you the other day where it was a wrinkle conditioner and they came to us and said, mm-hmm. you know, we can't sell this stuff, we can't give it away. And there's a lot of people out there with wrinkles, so there's a, <laughs> not a bad market. And uh, <laughs> what we did, we simply tripled the price because we found that um, at the price they were selling at, people said, it can't be very good, it's too cheap. And as soon as you tripled the price, everybody thought, shit, this must be great. And sales went through the roof. Yep. So um, is, is there a, a cor- corollary to that at the bottom end? Um, well, I mean, I mean, you, you you have hands-on experience on on how this really works, and and the the mistake that many companies do is is to price timidly. Um, they're simply afraid of. Uh, of of pricing too um, too high and and they do this because um, they they use um, unscientific methods like guesses and gut feel and and you know ten uh, percent below the, the 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 main competitor yeah and 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 that that almost always leads to um, uh, inferior business results and and. The, Certainly in startups, many times um, uh, business failure. Yeah, well, in startups, I guess so many people want to get off to a flying start, and they and they feel that if they price their products low, then they're more likely to get a little bit of market traction. Is that is that sort of motivation for them? Well, it is, but in in fact, certainly if if you have if you are a startup and if you have a an innovative product uh, or even so an, a, a disruptive product. You are going to sell only to early adopters, yes. and early adopters are not pricing. They are buying for all different reasons, yes. but price is not one of them. So um, the, the fact that there are statistics out there saying that <clears throat> the majority of startup failures comes from failures in pricing, and what happens often is that. Yes, entrepreneurs <laughs> price themselves low. They attract only those few early adopters that are out there, and because there are only few of them, they drop the price again, believing that they're suddenly going <clears> to <throat> attract a, a huge market. Yeah, and they don't. So yeah. suddenly you have low prices, no sales, and business failure. Yeah, well that. Sort of follows, doesn't it? <laughs> um, if it does. I guess if if you've got a new product that's disruptive and you go out into the marketplace, um, I, I guess you've got a difficult bit of a quandary, haven't you? Because if you price it high, knowing that um, early adopters will probably buy it anyway for a whole bunch of different reasons, then when you come to mass market, you've either got to drop your price or try and maintain it. Both of which I figure is um, kiss of death, isn't it? it yeah, well, uh, I mean, the, the, any any product goes through this life cycle where, um, if it is innovative, um, you command higher prices, and um, and 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 eventually um, you, you, 
you know, first you attack the oligopters, and eventually you, you're going to attract a mass market. But the mass market is only going to be interested in your product when they're competition. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and you need, that competition most likely is going to be lower priced uh, than, than, than you are, so you, you then need to lower your prices. Because the next, and, uh, and obviously, uh, the next entrepreneur is the next entrepreneur is going to make the same mistake you did, and price low, aren't they? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 but but because if you if you did this right, you you reap substantial benefits from those early adopters, so that you can continue to innovate. Yeah. And and it's it's when you continue to innovate. You are going to defend your position as 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 a market leader, and 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 if you really look at it, market leaders in every industry are always the high price alternative. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because they can continue to innovate. I think I think the other thing is that um, it, it's um, if you're the market leader, you know, when people go to buy something that they get nervous about it. Do I really want to buy it? Can I afford it? You know. What if I take it home? My wife doesn't like it, or whatever it is. Um, but if if you're the market leader, you really have taken away a lot of that um, fear of purchase, haven't you? Everybody else is buying it, so therefore I'm probably pretty safe. So people are prepared to pay a little bit more. Is that sort of part of the psychology? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, I mean, I I, <laughs> I, I cannot stop um, um, wondering or sort of. Not wondering, but be at awe at how Apple, you know, despite um, what the Samsungs of the world are, are doing, you know, they they are still collecting uh, more than half of the entire cell phone's profits. Yes, with with a you know with a <laughs> because because they 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 created a, a a value proposition that is so different than the, than the value proposition of of, of the Android phones. Yeah, they and have the value proposition of of, of desirability and, and exclusivity, and um, and and it works. It's but it's not easy to do at all. <laughs> no, so. I, I, I was I just made a note actually to ask you later in the interview. Um, how do you see the pricing of the Apple Watch? I think that's fascinating. Um, that first of all, they get something that makes it costs them eighty bucks to make, and everybody knows it costs them eighty bucks to make. It's no secret. Most products you don't have any real idea what it costs to make, but they, they tell you it's about eighty bucks to make the watch. They sell them for four hundred and something, or all the way up to seventeen thousand, and you know that it's going to be obsolete in eighteen months. How the hell did they pull that off? What's the what's the? I mean, it's an extraordinary. Um, yeah. Um, positioning when you think about it, isn't it? It is, and 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 and, and again, um, additional um, you know additional uh, value that they manage to create, uh, and and so difficult to uh, um, to repeat. But yeah. but it's interesting with that seventeen thousand dollar watch because <laughs> there is something within sort of best practice pricing that is called price imaging. And right. this, <coughs> the, 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 the basis behind price imaging is the, the, the psychology that we all uh, <laughs> live through, and that is that when we are um, exposed to one number, 
and right. a second number, we automatically compare them. We cannot not compare them. Right. So when when media is 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 continuously pounding us with messages about the the you know the three hundred forty nine dollar Apple Watch and the four hundred whatever fifty dollar Apple Watch and the seventeen thousand dollar Apple Watch, those three hundred fifty four hundred fifty versions of the Apple Watch in our minds look much more affordable than they really are. Yeah. Because we compare the 17,000 to the 349. Yeah, is that that simply playing on ego? Is that simply an ego buy? So people, didn't matter whether it was 17,000 or 27,000 people, I mean, why would they pick a number like 17,000? Is there a psychology Um, about, about that? I don't think there's any psychology about that, but it, but it's also interesting that if you, if you if you if you want something to look expensive, more expensive, you make sure that the the um, uh, like the seventeen thousand, not sixteen thousand nine ninety nine. Yeah. Okay. Whereas the things you really want to sell is three forty nine. Okay, and this is works in the same way. The psychology when we read that three, we we um, we 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 automatically compare it to the nine, and therefore the three, um, uh, you know, the the the, the three forty nine in our minds look cheaper than what it really is, and it looks cheaper than the three fifty. Because then suddenly we compare a three with a zero, and the the that works the other way around. Do do, do they really want to sell a three fifty nine, or do they want to sell a four fifty? Because people, oh, I'm sure they they want to sell the. Uh, I, I, they they want to sell both. Is the psychology of buying that people sit there and say, "Well, I don't want to be seen by everybody as being really cheap and buying the three fifty one," so I'll. Put in the extra hundred and buy the four fifty. Is that is that a psychology that works? In- Absolutely. And, and if, if but 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 this is we talked about the phones and if there are customers out there and 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 I, I know personally some of them that 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 would never ever in their life buy an iPhone because they feel they are ripped off. Yeah. Okay. Whereas, so they go and <clears throat> and buy an Android phone instead, which is at a fraction of the price, and they're happy with that. Yeah. And they they cause, and these are people who always want a good deal. Yeah. Well, they, they don't care about the exclusivity. They they, they don't care. They, they some people want a message to their, their you know their surroundings that I have the money, I have uh, the exclusivity, I want to align myself with sort of global, uh, high-quality brands. Other mm. people want a, <clears throat> want a message to their surroundings that um, I focus on getting a good deal. You know, I'm yeah. a cheapskate. I, I, read a, I, read a, <laughs> but, um, I read some research recently that said that about 17% of Americans buy based on price, um, usually mm-hmm. for socioeconomic reasons, but not, not always. Some people just always want to buy a bargain. So shouldn't we just ignore them because you're never going to make any money out of them anyway? Well, it, it, uh, as, as a, it, 
it really goes into into price segmentation, and and you need to have products that that um, that cater for those um, who who, who want to you know who want to who who want to who want to pay low prices. Yeah. And likewise, you want to have uh, um, other versions of your offering that cater to those who always say, "I want the best. I want to." You know, I, I pay extra for quality. I pay extra for um, the brand that I can associate myself with, and so forth. Yeah, I want so, to be seen uh, with my Louis Vuitton luggage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and uh, um, always, always, always having that price differentiation and segmentation along the lines of what we call decision drivers and value drivers. Are, are are another key to um, to best practice pricing. Right. So, what are the most common pricing mistakes? Well, the common, most common pricing mistake is not caring about pricing. And um, I've had this is sort of one of the reasons I uh, I got into this because so many times I was in in companies where we, you know, we stood there, we were just about to put the the brochure to print. And we had a hastily organized pricing meeting, okay? <laughs> where, you know, you know, with a with yeah, a, I've been in a few of those. Flow of opinions, yeah. <laughs> you know, with a flow of opinions went back and forth of what the price could be, and the the only one that really had any data in these, you know, was often the CFO who had cost data. Yeah. Um, so 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 then it became a discussion about uh, you know you know guesswork. Um, and the right way of doing it, of course, and that's what we do in Atenga, is we go out and we measure willingness to pay. Yes. And once you measure willingness to pay and how these decision and value drivers align with willingness to pay and influence willingness to pay, once you have that hard data, setting the right price becomes the child's play. Right. But companies do not have it. Yeah, and therefore they guess. The absolute worst way, I would think, to price your product is the CFO way, where he says it costs us a hundred dollars to make, and our overheads are probably ten percent. So, and and gross cost is a hundred and ten dollars. So, if we put fifteen percent on that, we can sell it for a hundred and twenty-nine dollars, or whatever the number. Yep. That's the absolute worst way to price anything, right? Yeah, I mean it's it's it it it, it it's you know it's a sort of minimum margin and uh, or cost plus and and uh, it it you have to align your prices with that willingness to pay. Yeah. And when you do, and, and I have oodles of, I mean, <laughs> we we've had experiences just like you mentioned where um, our clients uh, we measure willingness to pay. We figure out um, that they're underpricing themselves, and they increase prices and, and both sales volume and 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 and, and price uh, sales volume and profits increases. Yes. But the other is also true. We've had in, <clears throat> we've had instances where uh, making small price changes can double the uh, with small price um, reductions can. Uh, uh, can substantially increase the the growth, uh, double the growth of a company. 
Okay. Really? Okay. Uh, and that is because there's something in, in the psychology of pricing that we call price walls. And price walls are um, psychological barriers where a, a very small change can um, make a very big difference in, in, in revenues. Um, for example, we, uh, <coughs> we just did a we just did a study on um, uh, which we did for for our own marketing purposes on on the streaming music industry. Right. And um, the leader in that is a company called Pandora. Yes. They uh, um, their um, uh, their premium, which I think they call Pandora One, is priced at four ninety nine. Right. If they would price it at five bucks. They will gain thirty percent market share. Okay. So, <laughs> explain that to me. Well, we measured willingness to pay, and right. for a large population, four ninety nine for Pandora services are simply too cheap. Right. So they say it is. I'm not going to buy Pandora because it's a message of inferior quality. Right. And in fact, if they if Pandora increased their prices to nine ninety nine, where for example Spotify is, then <laughs> their revenue would roughly triple. Wow. Okay. Imagine that's... what that do for shareholder value. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. So yeah. from four from four ninety nine to five bucks, for example. Um, uh-huh. Is it something about the numbers? Is it something about is is there something about um, Something ninety nine, four ninety nine, nine ninety nine, one hundred ninety nine, ninety nine, or whatever it is, that, that actually is a motivating trigger to purchase, or or no, or is that just a f- yeah, something that everybody does? It is, and, and but it, it, it's it's again that price is a message of quality, right? And in in the streaming music world, it just happens so that four ninety nine is 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 a message of inferior quality to a larger number of people than 500 is. Hmm. Okay? That is fascinating. And, and so, yeah, so, so at five, you have more people thinking, ah, this must be good because it's a higher price. Hmm. Okay. So it is fascinating. That, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, so what's the right process for setting the price right? Is it is it purely going out and asking people where you, where the price point is? I mean, I've just done this exercise for a client, and it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, the right, the, the right process is, is to, um, just like I said, you go out and measure willingness to pay, and, there's, there's, and, and, and how that aligns with these decision drivers and value drivers. Um, and, and there's two, I'm not going to go into details here, but there's two methods you can, can uh, do this. One is called the Van Bessendorf Price Sensitivity Meter, which is a way of asking unaided questions um, in, in such a fashion that you can once um, subject to, um, uh, uh, to, to statistical analysis, you can very accurately uh, define willingness to pay. Right. The other way is using conjoint analysis and where you provide uh, different scenarios or, or bundles of, of benefits together with the price. And also then you can, you can figure out very accurately where, where the, that willingness to pay is. 
and um, and 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 how uh, willingness to pay is is um, <coughs> affected by uh, by these value and decision drivers. So and, when you um, yep, sorry, go ahead. No. So when you go into a company and you look at um, a bundle and price point, and the company needs to have a higher margin. Do you experiment with what sort of additions to the bundle would provide that higher price? Um, we, we can. There many, many times. Uh, tell you a story here. Um, we <coughs> there's something in the world out there called a TPA, a third party administrator. Mm-hmm. Um, small companies, uh, or you know, companies up to about a hundred people. In um, you know employees, uh, their owners, their management often use these um, uh, uh, deferred benefit plans to tuck away uh, money for their their pension more than what could be done in, in a 401k. Right. And um, those plans are managed by a group of companies called third-party administrators. Yes. But what they actually do is to make sure that the plan is compliant with all the various um, uh, rules and regulations that change all the time. Now, yes. and here's the, here's the, here's the kicker. Um, administration is a low-value work. Yep. And customers of, of these TPAs are typically willing to pay about $1,200 a year for that service. Yep. But... If instead you market it as um, you market it as uh, as you know pension plan pension plan compliant management, then yep. suddenly people are willing to pay five grand. <laughs> okay, so exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. So so no, and this is then a driver. Then and I was trying to illustrate how a simple driver can affect. Willingness to pay. Yeah. So, are there any particular industries who are better at getting prices right than others? Uh, not really. Um, the um, uh, online industries are using um, sophisticated. Many, not everybody, but many online uh, retailers um, use sophisticated um, software that, that continuously change the pricing. Yes, and 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 they sort of they they then can measure price elasticity and and continuously um, uh, sort of narrow that down. Um, that that's that works uh, and it works really very well. Uh, but it's an option that many other industries doesn't have. Um, and 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 for those the um, and it really doesn't matter whether it's consumer industries or. Or business to business, or whether it's services or products, um, I have not really seen any industry being better at pricing than, than any other, um, other than for those online retailers that can who are much more sophisticated. Price. Yeah, so are there yeah. tools? Are there tools that people can use for pricing? Yeah, there is. There's, um, there's a couple of uh, vendors of um, uh, what's called price management software, and and when you Implement those tools often, uh, and, and 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 put in place a a proper pricing process. You can often gain 
between five to eight percent of revenues as pure profit. Wow! Um, and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about startup companies here. I'm talking yeah. about established companies. So, so, so it's a very very profitable undertaking to to focus specifically on pricing as as a business activity. Um, that is really just as important uh, that than you know compared to cost control and, and sales volume growth. Okay, just to, just to sum up, um, what can companies gain from getting their prices right? They they can gain. Well, if you if you do, yeah, if if you do it right, um, it is not conceivable at all that that you can double your growth rate, you can double your profits and. And in terms of um, valuation, you can, you know, triple or quadruple your your valuation. Wow! So, um, it's yeah, it's, it's it, it can make a huge uh, huge impact. And it's pretty scientific. So, Perth, yeah, thanks very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really appreciate it. I, th- I think price is fascinating. I've seen some of the um, um, things that can be achieved just by j- adjusting price, and I'm amazed. But it is, it is um, a very um, scientific um, process to get your price right. So if you'd like to find out more about per chauffeurs and a tenga, go right. to... Uh, thanks, Bob. It's, uh, yeah, it's com and... Um um, I have such a difficult name that uh, we yeah. leave it with just the company. <laughs> okay, atenga.com, A-T-E-N-G-A.com. And really, for um, for what it costs you to use somebody um, like Per or to use Per, um, the differences that getting your prices right can make to your business are quite extraordinary. So, Atenga... Yeah, okay, thank you so much, Bob, and, and um, thank you. I hope this, this was very interesting for me, and uh, I'm happy to, um, to come back on the show. And I'll see you again at Metal on Saturday. So I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. Coming to you this week from Los Angeles. I'm one of those people who thinks 3D printing is just awesome. I was alerted to this story by Steve Grant, who's a regular listener, and I really do appreciate his input. Well, 3D printing's already revolutionized industry on almost every level, providing designers and architects and engineers and inventors and researchers and doctors and jewelers and just about everybody else with an endless range of opportunities to easily exploit digital and physical technologies and improve design and production times and accuracy and just reduce costs 
considerably. And the list of items being 3D printed is really extraordinary. And the variety from body parts to homes. The Chinese are printing 3D homes, three-bedroom homes in concrete, at a cost reduction of over 75%. And not only that, they can build 10 homes in a day. Now, a team of researchers from the ARC Centre of Excellence for Electromaterials Science has taken the technology to the next level by adding another dimension to it, time. These new 4D printers are, in essence, 3D printed structures that can change their shape over time. Think transformers. So ACES researchers 4D printed a valve that automatically opens and contracts under the influence of external stimuli such as water or heat. The valve actuates in response to its surrounding water's temperature. The cleverness of the valve's creation is just bloody remarkable. The cool thing is that it's working. It's a working functioning device that you just pick up from the printer. There is no assembly required. So this essentially means that researchers are now able to design and print an object while giving it the ability to change its shape, fold itself, or even self-assemble under the influence of pressure, vibrations, magnets, or changes in temperature. That's that's unbelievable to me. This groundbreaking finding can have limitless applications across a wide range of industries with quite astonishing outcomes. For For instance, scientists theorize it can be used to manufacture medical devices that have the ability to change their shape inside the body to manufacture water pipes that contract and expand depending on water demands, as well as to produce self-assembling furniture. Now, that's pretty cool, and that'll change a lot of industries, but particularly it would appear for medical applications. I think that is absolutely fantastic. 4D printing, where they change their shape after... They are printed. Amazing. Now, we receive a lot of emails here at Bob Pritchard Radio Show from entrepreneurs who have questions pertaining to their business. We like to address these because irrespective of where you are in the world and what business you're in, most businesses face the same issues. So we received this email from John Francis, who's located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and John writes, thank you for your show. It is not only interesting, but it has lots of great advice and has helped me with my business. The major problem is that our small company of just 20 employees, the major problems we face are firstly hiring a good team and people that will stay with the company, secondly attracting capital to grow the business and thirdly developing a structure and processes that enable the company to scale up quickly when the need arises either in the short or the long term. Well, John, I'm sure that most small businesses have the same problems, so I'm interested in your thoughts. And, so, and he goes on and says, I'm interested in your thoughts on how to address these issues. Well, let's, firstly, attracting and hiring the right people is always difficult. Fortunately, something that's totally within your control. So with an improved job market and a shortage of skilled high-tech professionals, it's getting harder and harder to attract and retain people. To me, one of the least important factors when attracting good talent is the resume. 
these days, everybody's got a bloody great resume. But a few phone calls, a little bit of research, really pokes holes in lots of those glowing reports. Getting a potential new hire to interact with your existing team, that's always a good idea and identifies lots of issues. But it's also up to the CEO to ensure that you know, you've built a good collaborative corporate culture and a measure of transparency in the business. It's also important to publicly reward good performance and to pay incentives based on the benefit of employee initiatives to the company. The second item that you mentioned is accessing capital for growth. This is a difficult issue and generating capital is bloody difficult to say the least. But if you have a good company, you're making money and can demonstrate the benefits of that the investment, it, it should be relatively easy for you to attract funding. Of course, the cost of that funding, that's the amount of shareholding you have to give away for that money, is another issue. It often comes down to just how good a negotiator you are and how attractive the proposition is. As an entrepreneur, you should be prepared to show that you are growing fast or have completely figured out your business model before entering the latter stage rounds. Otherwise, you will have difficult time raising capital. The third question, how do you build a scalable platform? Well, you have to build it from the beginning, John. If you believe your idea is big, build your platform to become big. One of the challenges that most entrepreneurs face is that because of lack of sufficient capital in the early days, they don't invest in infrastructure or scalability. It's likely you'll be confined investors interesting funding you to achieve this scalability, but you've got to have a good solid business with, with good potential for growth. So, John, thanks very much for email. I greatly appreciate it. Tomorrow we will send you a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, my latest book published by Wiley's in New Jersey. I hope you enjoy it. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show and are benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Send in your questions, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook and please become a contact of mine on LinkedIn. I use it all the time. So thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs and remember, it's much easier to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.